Isn't it just delightful when you see a little boy imitating his dad or a little girl imitating a mum? You know, sometimes you see a little boy walking after his dad down the street and there's just, you know, they've dressed him up to look exactly the same. You know, the same shirt, same boots, same hat. Or sometimes they go out to work and, oh, I've got to have a work shirt just like Dad's. And, and they head off out to work out on the farm or wherever or in the garden with Dad for the day. Or the little girl wanting to be just like her mum. And mum's pushing the pram along with the baby in and, and, and little girl's there with the dolly in her little toy pram pushing it along as well. It's just delightful. We imitate those that we look up to. And it's actually an amazing expression of love. It's a natural thing for children who are loved to to reflect the parents who love them. And today, right at the start of the reading, we read, read, Therefore be imitators of God as dearly beloved children. And that's exactly what it's talking about. Just like a child imitates his his mum or or, or her dad, his his dad or her mum, whatever, as beloved children of God, we, we sh- it, it's right for us to be imitating God. But what does that mean? Obviously, we don't sort of set ourselves up and go, well, I'm the creator of the universe, you know. Um, what does it mean to, to imitate God? It doesn't mean we walk down the street and go, well, I expect all those people to bow down and worship me. Um, what does it mean to be imitators of God? Well, we're really carrying on from where we've left off a couple of weeks ago in Ephesians chapter 4 and the topic back then that was living as the transformed creatures that we are. God has transformed us from unrighteousness to righteousness. We are transformed from profanity to holiness. But about now the people on this side of the room are probably feeling pretty good. (laughs) I'm I'm not indicating that at all. Um, And because of this... We are to be imitators of God. But what does that mean? Verse 2 tells us, To imitate God means to walk in love as Christ loved us. And it's a very particular sort of love. It's a sacrificial love. Christ loved us and he gave himself up for us as a fragrant sacrifice, offering and sacrifice to God. It's a sacrificial love. And it is in this same sort of love, this sacrificial love, in which we are to imitate God. In Romans chapter 12, Paul tells us a bit more about what this sacrificial love is all about. And he talks about it in terms of us being a a living sacrifice. Now I'm just going to put the reading up there. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, that's a bit of a strange thing to say, isn't it? I mean, what's a sacrifice? Usually it's a hunk of dead meat or a a bunch of grain or ground-up flour or something that you then burn up on the altar. But here he's saying that our bodies are to be a, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Well, that's... A bit interesting as well. That's our spiritual worship. You know, most of us, if we start to think, well, what's spiritual worship? We might think in terms of, oh, when, when, when a particularly really good worship song is on, it's being played by a really good band and a whole bunch of people um, singing it together, it just gives us this tingly feeling and they just, just have this amazing feeling inside and we might go, well, that's spiritual worship. 
But that's not spiritual worship at all. What it's saying here, spiritual worship is presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. Yeah, Jesus said that there's a time that was coming when true worshippers would worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, our worship of God, it has to be in truth. We have to be you know, believing the right stuff about God. But what does it mean to be in spirit? Well, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but also our spiritual act of worship is a surrender of us, ourselves, our bodies as living sacrifices. Reading on from verse 2 up there, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Sacrificial love is as a result of our old self having died and we've now been born again to live this new life to which God calls us, a life of holiness, a life of purity. Through the blood of Christ, God takes away our sin and he makes us holy and then he moves in. And the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit inside of us, through this, he gives us the power to continue in lives of holiness. Never give up on yourself. Never give up and say, oh, I can never be holy. You can be holy because God is transforming you. God has moved in. God is making home in you. Look, we've just moved into a house now and, and you know, in the first few days it would have been very easy to have just given up. And actually, I'm going to confess now, to some extent I have. And Robin unpacks another couple of boxes each day and, yeah, I'm afraid I haven't. Um, but... It, If we want to make that house a home, we keep unpacking, don't we? And we keep rearranging and organising things. And it's the same. When God has moved into your life, he hasn't given up on you. He's going to continue to change you and continue with his work of sanctification, making you into the person that he wants you to be. We've been working our way through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And in the early stages, it's all been about our identity in Christ. It's been about who we are in Christ. And in such, he's actually been laying the the, the foundations, laying the groundwork for all of what he's now continuing on to teach us. It was all about, because of who we are in Christ, he's now gone on to, this therefore is how we should live. We are children of God, therefore we should live as God's children, imitating our Heavenly Father. And that's why the title of last week's sermon was Living as the Transformed Creatures That We Are and and how we actually have to work with God in that. You see, as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are different to other people in the world. You are called to a higher ethic and I am called to a higher ethic. So teenagers, there's no good coming home to mum and dad and and saying, oh, I want to be allowed to go and do such and such. All my friends, they're allowed to do that. Well, first of all, that's a lie 
because you know as well as your parents do that not all your friends are allowed to do whatever it is that you're wanting to do. Um, some of them might be allowed to, but not all of them. But secondly, you've got to face up to the fact you're different. If you're a Christian, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you're not like all of your other mates. There is a different ethic in you. God expects you to live to a higher standard. And it doesn't stop when you're a teenager. Other people might be cheating on their tax, but that's not okay for us because we're called to the highest of integrity. Your mates might go out and get drunk on a Friday or a Saturday night, but that's not okay for you. We are called to wisdom and drunkenness is not wisdom. Jesus is returning and when Jesus returns, it's going to be instantaneous and unexpected. And I don't think he's going to want to be waiting around eight hours for us to sober up. That would be a bit of an anticlimax, wouldn't it? Waiting all your life for Jesus to return and then happen to be drunk when he does. 22% of of people in their 20s might be living together in a de facto relationship, but that's not okay for us. Because as Christians, we are called to a higher ethic. And reading from verse 8 gives us a reason. At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Right? See, there's two components to this. This is what you were. This is now what you are. Therefore, walk as you are, not as you were. Live as you are, not as you were. Verse 9, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. You understand this, don't you? Um, This is all part of imitating God. Imitating God is an expression of sacrificial love and sacrificial living. And these two are so tightly bound that they cannot be separated. Right? Sacrificial love and sacrificial living are so tightly bound they cannot be separated. I can't say, oh, I love God, and then go off and live for myself, because that's just demonstrating that I don't really love God at all. Jesus said in John chapter 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Right? There's the two of them combined. Sacrificial love, sacrificial living. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And likewise, some of us try to do it the other way around where we live a life of self-denial and asceticism, that that is sacrificial living. And, And to do this is empty and pointless and meaningless if it's done without love. In men's Bible study, just this Thursday night, just gone, uh, we, we, we've been studying 1 Corinthians and we got to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and that famous passage on love that we usually hear read at weddings. And in it it says, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 3, If I give away all I have, that's pretty sacrificial, isn't it? And if I deliver my body up to be burned, that's sacrificial living, isn't it? Standing for what you believe so strongly, 
that, that you even get burnt for your faith. Sacrificial living. Even if I give away all I have and deliver my body up to be burned, but have not love, I gain what? Nothing. Nothing. Sacrificial living without sacrificial love is just pointless. The two must go together. And Paul gives us some examples of these. In fact, uh, next week we're going to be beginning, be beginning a few weeks of a little sub-series in living in submission. And it's going to cover all sorts of areas. It's going to be husbands submitting to wives, wives submitting to husbands, parents with children and children with parents and within the church together, how we relate to one another. Um, so that's going to be beginning next week and it's, it'll take a few weeks for us to cover each of those. But for now, in today's reading, there's a few other examples for us and, and he actually starts off by giving us the opposite. The, the opposite of sacrificial love and sacrificial living is self-indulgent sens- sensuality. And Paul rails against it. Self-indulgent sensuality has no place at all in the Christian church. That means there's no place in my life, has no place in your life, it has no place in this gathering. And he says this, Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Uh, You may have heard in the news this week, Hillsong have made the news again. Um, because of the Royal Commission into Child Abuse. Uh, Pastor Frank Houston, he's actually dead now, but he's the father of Brian Houston, the current leader of Hillsong. Well, Frank originally began the Sydney Christian Life Centre, which later on became Hillsong. And Frank Houston, in the year 2000, admitted his sexual abuse of a boy in New Zealand in the 1970s. And it makes you sick, doesn't it? Um... Now that's old news, that happened a long time ago, it was admitted a long time ago, it was dealt with a long time ago, it's just back in the news again because of the Royal Commission into Child Abuse. It's a long time ago but it's still sickening. And oh, I just wish that these things was, I wish that was an isolated incident, that, that there just wasn't a regular occurrence but unfortunately it is. There's big names like Jimmy Swaggart, Jim Baker, Clark Taylor, Ted Haggard, They're all well-known Christian pastors or tele-evangelists who have been guilty of sexual immorality. And it's just wrong. It's even happened here in this town in the last decade. It is wrong for sexual immorality to be in the church. And you know it. You know it's wrong, don't you? And the world knows it's wrong. That's why it makes the news when it happens and when it becomes public. And don't go thinking it's just those outsiders who do it. The biggest lure of sexual immorality today, well, it began a few a couple of decades ago getting piped into our homes through copper wire. These days the internet can just turn up on your phone or your iPad wirelessly, just like that. One recent study says that around 30% of all internet traffic is pornography. Now some of you that might shock, some of you go, yep, I'd believe it. 
And the trouble is it, it, it becomes so prevalent because we tend to think that, oh, it's all anonymous. Nobody knows that I'm doing it. You need to know there's nothing anonymous about the internet. Every internet connection has a unique IP address which is logged any time you go to an internet site. I've noticed that whenever I go to the Elders Weather site, over on the right-hand side there's a, there's a bunch of ads and just coincidentally it always seems to be advertising what I'm about to be buying. And I thought, right, I'm going to give this a little bit of a test. I'm going to try it again. So as I actually wrote this sermon, I thought, I'm going to go there. So I, so I clicked on the Elders Weather site and over on the right up pops an ad for UHF 2A radios. And guess what? Half an hour earlier... I had unwrapped a brand new UHF 2A radio that had arrived in the mail. You see, I'd been doing a bit of research on the internet, looking for the cheapest price for the different and the, which one's the best, and, and they'd tracked me. And they knew that I was looking at UHF 2A radios, and so they knew that they would send to me ads for that. There's nothing anonymous about the internet. I've just... I've just shifted um, the provider for, for, um, for hosting the, the Bush Disciples website. And now there's statistics. And it'll actually tell me, I mean, you can get more in-depth statistics if you go if, into higher plans and stuff. But even mine, it tells you the IP addresses of people who have visited Bush Disciples. It tells you, you um, what country they're from and, and even closer than that and where they've been referred from what the last page was before they visited. There's nothing anonymous about the internet. And even whether you feel it's private or not, sexual immorality, even by viewing pornography, is wrong. And if you have a problem in this area, if this is something that's got a hold of you, you need to do something about it. Come and talk to me about it. I'm not going to tell anybody else about it and I'm not going to judge you. But the only way to get out of this to get out of this rut is to have some kind of accountability set up so that you know that whenever I go to such and such those types of sites so that somebody else can see where you've been visiting on the internet. Um, so if you have a trouble in that area, come and talk to me. I'm not going to judge you. We've got to help you get out of that rut. But it's not only sexual immorality and impurity. There's other stuff here that's listed. Covetousness. Oh, covetousness. Oh, that's, that's pretty respectable really, isn't it? Yeah, we're not, what, what's wrong with covetousness? We think that is a respectable sin. But that's not what it says here. Verse 5. You may be sure of this. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, oh, those terrible people, or who is covetous, what? That is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. There's nothing respectable about covetousness. To covet something is when you strongly desire something that somebody else has. And covetousness should have no place in the church. To covet something is the opposite of self-sacrificial living. 
giving up stuff. Eagerly desiring something is the opposite to being willing to give up something. When you covet something, you can actually begin to idolise it. It's where you you begin to, to desire a thing. Maybe you desire it even more than what you desire God. And that puts it higher than God. And that's why Paul makes that connection. Covetousness is idolatry. And then he goes on, verse 4, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Sometimes our tongues run away with us a bit, don't they? Um, I know mine does. Uh, This is an area that I battle with because I love a good joke and and when I think of something funny, I think it's my responsibility to share it. And everybody else should get in on the joke because they'll love it as much as me, I'm sure. Um, The problem is sometimes it might be a bit rude. And for me to share that, even to think about it, it's not right. It's wrong. In men's Bible study a few weeks, somebody gave a bit of very wise advice. Somebody had thought of a joke and they were just thinking whether, whether it was appropriate to share it or not. And, and the bit of wise advice was, well, if you've got to think about it, usually that means no, it's not. And I think that was very wise advice. Um, and in the workplace or at a party or maybe even at a wedding, you can be sure there's going to be plenty of filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. And that might be the way you used to be. That might be acceptable in that circumstance for everybody. But it's not acceptable for you. Because that's how you used to be. That's the old you. You are now the new you. And that is not you any longer. Do you get what Paul's doing here? He's not making a list of rules and regulations as laws that we have to keep. I want you to understand this. He is not making a list of rules and regulations and laws that we have to keep. What he's saying is, that's the way of the world. And that is the way you used to be. But that is not who you are any longer. You are not of the world anymore. That you has died. You've been born again. And that is not the way you are anymore. Therefore, be who you are, not as you were. Now, you might be sitting here listening to this and I actually hope that some of you are actually getting a little bit of joy out of this as you realise how much God has changed you. Because sometimes we just don't, don't take stock of how much God has changed us. And, and you might be th- sitting here thinking, well, well, that's right, I was like that. And I did used to think those things. I did used to say those things. I, and for me, I, never, I didn't bat an eyelid. You know, I could string 40, 40 F words together, four letter words together without drawing breath. But that's, that's not who I am anymore. God has changed me. I actually hope you're getting a bit of joy out of this. I don't know if you are or not. Maybe at one time you were a champion at foul language or rude jokes or crude thoughts and it never used to worry you in the slightest. Now you go, wow, God has brought me a long way. I know I've still got further to go. 
I know I'm not perfect, but I can see God has shifted me. And he's shifting me more. And the good that God has worked in you is through the power of his Holy Spirit. Any change that God does in me, it's the power of his Holy Spirit. Any change that God does in you, it's the power of his Holy Spirit. And there's nothing that gives me joy more than to see the Holy Spirit at work in people's lives and to see the Holy Spirit at work in my life. I hope you get that same sort of joy. Do you guys get that sort of joy? See God at work? Yeah? See a few very tentative nods. Yeah? So that's not who you are any longer. Don't go back to what you were and don't let anybody entice you back to the old you. Verse 6 says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Peter O'Brien wrote one of, one of the books that's on my bookshelf and he says this, It is all too easy for believers to be influenced by the surrounding world and to succumb to its ways of thinking and behaving. The result is that what is acceptable to the culture of the day becomes acceptable in the church. This is particularly true in contemporary Western society in the area of sexual morality. Paul now underscores his first warning with a second as he urges his readers to heed the admonitions to avoid sexual immorality and obscene speech. They should not be misled by anyone who encourages sexual permissiveness, thinking such activities are a matter of indifference. Arguments of this kind are empty and devoid of the truth because they do not reckon with God's holy judgment of sin. I think he's laid that out pretty clearly there. The danger is for what is acceptable in the culture of the day, right, out in the world, to become acceptable in the church. And so Paul says, do not become partners with them. Preparing this message this week, has actually been very difficult for me. Um, not because it's hard to understand. I actually find it very easy to understand. My difficulty is I very rarely preach on the same passage twice. And the reason for that is I, I preach my way through a whole book of the Bible. Right? So I started there and preached all the way through it. And I'm sort of finding there's plenty of books I haven't preached on yet, so I never actually get back to, to ones I've already preached on. But the thing is, a couple of years ago, I uh, had a bit of time out from that and I said, right, we're going to go through the lectionary readings because the lectionary readings give a bit of an overview of the whole Bible. And I realised there's a whole bunch of people in the church at the time who, who didn't have that. And so I found myself preaching on this passage a couple of years ago. And last time I preached on this passage was the day I announced to the congregation back where I used to be, a congregation that I love very deeply, that I was resigning from that denomination. And this reading just happened to be the reading for the day. 
And I was just, at the time, I was just really struck at, at how amazing God is. Um, it was, this reading just laid out exactly the reasons why I couldn't be in that denomination anymore. Because that denomination had become a church that was very much swayed by the prevailing cultures, culture of the day, by prevailing cultural values. I'd seen enough of the way that that denomination made decisions to know that I couldn't partner with it any longer. I knew that if I sent my kids on youth camps, they'd be just as likely to be taught, taught permissiveness as what they would be to be taught righteousness. Why would we partner with them? Why would we continue with a denomination more influenced by cultural values than by God's word? And so I was really amazed when I I was going to announce to the congregation that day that, hey, I I can't stay in this denomination anymore. And this was the reading, because that's what the reading is all about. It's about how we were like this, but now we're like this, There shouldn't be any hint of this among you anymore. Do not be partners with this because you are now this. So that's why I've sort of had real trouble uh, doing this sermon this week because it's a sad time for me. But I also wanted to get past that to try and connect, well, Lord, how would you have us today engage in this same passage? Now, I guess my question for you today is in what ways are you partnered with disobedience? Let me put it in another way. What company do you keep that pulls you away from who you are in Christ and draws you towards the old you. Here's a few examples. I'm always really upfront with people about marriage. I heard a minister say once, if you marry a child of the devil, you're always going to have trouble with your father-in-law. Now, to understand that, you've got to understand that God is black and white. We don't like black and white today. But you are either a child of the light or the child of the darkness. There's no child of grey. You're getting this? There's no twilight child. It's either light or darkness. You're either for God, one of God's children, or one of Satan's children. There's no grey. It's black and white. And if you're a Christian... Never, ever partner with someone who is not a Christian. If you're at the age of dating, don't even consider going out with someone who's not a Christian. Because the whole purpose of dating is to determine, is this person a suitable life partner for me or not? Is this person a suitable wife or a suitable husband? Well, the first question as a Christian, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you should be asking is, is this other person also a disciple of Jesus Christ? And if the answer is no, well, you've got your answer to whether they're a suitable partner for you. If the answer is yes, then okay, 
well, maybe it's okay to date that person and see, well, is this the person that God's calling me to marry? I've heard, had so many people say to me, and it's usually, I'll be blunt with this, it's usually young ladies who will say, oh, he's not a Christian, but I'm not going to marry him, I'm just going out with him. Well, you know what the outcome is. They end up getting married and then they wonder why well, he doesn't believe the same stuff as I do. And then the children come along and, well, I want to take the kids to, to Sunday school and, and bring them up in the Christian faith and well, he's not really interested in that. So that's one area in which we shouldn't be partnered with unrighteousness. Um, you might, have, might be in a business partnership that gives you trouble. If your business partner isn't a Christian, well, his priorities will probably be very different to your priorities. Because his priorities may be, well, I'm just going to make the biggest, fattest profit and I don't care how many toes I tread on to do it. Whereas as a Christian, your whole idea of business might be a very different thing. You might be realising that, hey, God actually wants me to use my business as a way to engage people for him. It's a way of me giving myself away and helping those who need help. And so you might find that your idea of business is very different to your business partner's idea of business. You might find a conflict there. In your social life it might be a conflict. Your friends might be a bunch of drunks and you find that when you hang out with them you start to drink too much too. It's the done thing, it's what's happening and you start to drink too much too. Maybe they're the ones that you shouldn't be partnered with. Maybe when you get together with your footy mates you find yourself sliding back into the old you with bad language and filthy jokes. Maybe they're the ones that you shouldn't be partnered with. The point is, don't be partnered with those who would lead you astray from the righteousness of God. And there's all sorts of areas that that can be in. Now that doesn't mean we cut ourselves off from the world. That doesn't mean that that, that we say, oh, well, anybody who's not a Christian, I'm not going to have anything to do with it. It doesn't mean that at all. What did Jesus do? He went to the tax collectors and the prostitutes and shared with them the love of God. But what I'm saying, so it doesn't mean to cut ourselves off, but what we do have to realise is there may be some relationships that we have that and that the partnership that we have with these are having a negative effect on us. Whereas other relationships that we have with people of the world is having a positive reaction on them. Okay? So, the alternative to all of this, of course, is to fill up on God. Okay? Don't be partnered with sons of disobedience, but fill up on God. Verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, 
addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to, to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of the reverence for Christ. There's two ways to look at it. We, we can look at it from the point of view of, oh, I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't do that, it's wrong. Or we can fill ourselves up on God. And the more you fill yourself up on God, the more you'll naturally imitate God. The closer you get to your heavenly Father, the closer your imitation of God will be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you, Lord, that you love us. I want to thank you, Lord, for the sacrificial love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to imitate you. Lord, fill us up with your love so that when we overflow there won't be anger and bitterness and and sadness coming out, but the joy and love of Christ would be overflowing out of our lives. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us partnerships that we hold that are not good for us. Partnerships and relationships that are dragging us away from you. Lord, I pray that you would reveal these to us and that you would help us to distance ourselves from these. But Lord, my prayer is also that as we go out into the world that we would be like a a light, shining light, whereas there is darkness. I remember seeing a cartoon once, Lord, where there was this uh, really dark night outside and somebody opened the door and the darkness shone into the room and Lord, it was just wrong. But Lord, that's the way some of us are. Sometimes the darkness of the world creeps into our lives, whereas we know it should be the other way around. When we open up the doors of our lives, the light of Christ should shine out into the darkness of the world. And Lord, I pray that this would be so for us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a good influence on those around us and that we would be able to engage them and, Lord, that you would draw them into your light. Just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.